Amen. Give it up for the band and the choir and Ricky one more time. Praise God. <clears throat> you have a Bible, turn with me, if you will, please, to James chapter 1. We're going to pick up this morning where we left off last week and continue on considering what God has to say to us in the midst of trials. We'll look from verse number 9 through verse number 20. While you're turning there, and while we sort of introduce and get settled in for the morning here, let me just take a moment, if I may, uh, as your interim pastor, to elaborate on some things that I have said to you before about you, about us as a church. I've made this statement on more, more than one occasion now that I believe that First Baptist New Orleans is a strategic church for reaching the city of New Orleans with the gospel, but then also for making a huge impact across the United States. I believe that. I really do mean that. You may wonder, well, why? Why do you say that? What, what about this church makes us a strategic church. Now, I'm going to say these things to us. This is not at all for us to get a big head or anything else like that, but I do think it's important that all of us together have a collective vision for who we can be and how it is that God might use us within this context. So let me explain that. Why do I think that we're a strategic church? First of all, we're First Baptist. And that might sound trivial, that might sound unimportant, but it's not. Listen, First Baptist churches carry historical weight and clout within cultures, but here's the problem. Most First Baptists, and I've been in a lot of them over 24 years of ministry, they're either dead as a hammer or they have completely abandoned the doctrines that have been handed down to us across the generations. Neither of those things are true about this church. Here's a First Baptist church in a strategic city, a very important city, New Orleans. It's not like we're out in the middle of nowhere in First Baptist of nowhere. No, we are First Baptist New Orleans, a major cultural center of the United States. And here, this church, the First Baptist church, sits in that context and is not dead as a hammer, and it hasn't abandoned the doctrines of the church. And so because of that, one reason alone, there's something significant here. That's not something for us to get a big head about. But it is something for us to be very well aware about. We are First Baptist Church of New Orleans, a very important church in a very important city. Second of all, when I look at the makeup of this church, the fabric, the people of this church, I see something there again that's important and strategic for the advancement of the gospel. Now, here's what I mean by that. If we, the people of God, are going to fulfill the Great Commission, it will take the preacher boys, absolutely. It will take the missionaries, people that get passports and plane tickets and go to the nations and live their life there. Yes, it will take the preachers and it will take the missionaries. But listen to me. If we're going to fulfill the gospel, it will take the preachers, the missionaries. It will take the doctors, the lawyers, the judges, the police officers. It will take the school teachers. It will take the nurses. It will take, listen to me, the entire body of Christ infiltrating culture and they're in those places where God puts them, leveraging their lives for the cause of Christ in those places. And I look at this church. There are key stakeholders for this city in this church. And think about the way that you and your lives and your vocation and your careers have already deeply saturated this culture. God has put you there, I believe, for strategic purposes. So that you, so that we collectively can leverage our lives for the cause of Christ. In short, there is a unique concoction of vocation within this membership that you do not find in other churches. You put that together with the fact that we're a First Baptist. There's a third reason I'd say that, and I could give you more, but just let me end it with this one. 
the, the unique relationships and partnerships that this church has with organizations, ministries, and other institutions within this city, most churches throughout the Southern Baptist Convention covet those types of relationships. Think about it. The relationship we have with NOBA, with BCM, the relationship that this church has with the seminary, with the relationship we have with a host of other ministries. Listen, you put all this together, and I would want to say to you, this church is a strategic church for reaching the city of New Orleans with the gospel and helping other church plants as they come along, because it's going to take all of us. But church, I want you to have, it's important that we have collectively a vision for who and what we could be. And I'm just going to say this to you. If we're really going to reach the city of New Orleans with the gospel, then First Baptist needs to be the best and strongest version of herself that she can be. That's what we've got to do. Now, that's where you come in. You may be wondering, well, what do I do? <laughs> and there's one question, and I'll answer that question. And you may also be wondering, well, how do we do that in a limbo period? How do we do that in a period where we don't yet have our pastor? Because admittedly, there are certain things we don't want to start or initiate until the next pastor is in place. He needs the opportunity to speak into those things, cast vision for those things, and all that is exactly right. But listen to me, wouldn't it be nice when our next pastor gets here, that he doesn't inherit a congregation that's just kind of sitting around and we don't really know what we should be doing and we're just kind of waiting? Wouldn't it be better if he inherited a church that already has the wind in its sails and the momentum behind her marching forward? That's something he can shape. That's something that's useful. And so I want to cast vision in preparation for our next pastor. Hey, let's together collectively be the best version of ourselves. Now, there are some structural, strategic things, some planning and some things that we can and will be doing as the leadership of this church, okay? But here's what you can do right now that in a limbo period you might be inclined to not do as much of. But let me just mention three things that you can do very quickly. Every member of this church, and I want to challenge you to give, and I want to challenge you to give yourself and everything that you have. Here's three things that you can do. Number one, don't slack off with your attendance. Something happens in an organization, in a group of people, when we just collectively stop what we're doing, come together, and worship Christ together. There's a chemistry here that's a God-built-in chemistry. It's not, it's, not, it's not just coincidental. It's not just haphazardly that this has happened. God made us to be communal people. And so when we come together, the body as a whole is strengthened and then individuals are strengthened. So don't, don't dismiss, don't pull back, don't, don't lessen up or lighten up in your attendance to our collective worship, to our Sunday school, to our small group, to fellowship things that we're going to have. And I'm going to say something about that here in just a minute. So in attendance, let's make sure that we're putting our best foot forward there. I want to challenge you to make sure that you're present with us through this time. And for the most part, the vast majority have done that, but I just want to challenge us to do it even more still. So that's one thing we can do. Second thing you can do is you can be inviting lost people, your friends, your family member, members right now. Why wouldn't you invite them to church? If you know somebody at work, you know somebody in your family, you know a neighbor that doesn't know Christ then invite them to come. You're, here's what they're going to get every time. They're going to get phenomenal worship, right, from our, from our band and from our choir, right? And I'm going to bring the word or Bo's going to bring the word every single time. We promise you that. 
So why not invite people? Now is the time to be doing that. And I challenge you to invite one person to church for next week. Let's, let's build some momentum here so that, again, the wind is in the sails of this church when our next pastor comes. Here's the, here's the last thing I'm going to challenge you to do. And that is to support this church financially. Now, I know that the vast majority of you probably already do, and that's wonderful. Here's what's wonderful. The more I learn about this church, the more I'm involved in certain meetings and learn the details that I need to know in this seat to lead this church. We have a fantastic financial team at this church that's been very good stewards of our resources. That part is healthy and good. But folks, there is more that we can do with a bit more sacrificial giving. You say, well, I can't give a whole lot more. Well, maybe you can't give a whole lot more. You could give a little bit more, and in a body this size, if each one does a little bit more, there's a lot more ministry that we can do together. So I just want to challenge you. Listen, this is what it means to be a member of the church, that each of us puts our best foot forward for the kingdom, that we put our shoulder into this thing, and we push for the kingdom. And that's what I want to challenge you and all of us to be during this interim time as we prepare and continue to pray for our next pastor. Amen? Amen. All right, James chapter 1. Let's read together this morning. I just wanted you to understand why it is that I say that this is a strategic church, and I want us to be that for the kingdom. All right, James chapter 1. We looked last week, verse number 1 through verse number 8. We started really sort of this book of James and then a two-part series within that book of trials and how it is that we interact with trials. Last week, just very quickly, let me review what we saw. Last week, I said that there are essentially four major types of things that James is saying to us about trials. Number one, we need to have joy knowing that God is at work. Number two, we need to be patient to allow God to do that work. Number three, we need to seek wisdom to navigate the trial at hand. And then number four, we need to trust that God will provide specifically wisdom. Now we look at verse number nine. James says, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation." Because as the flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat that it withers the grass. And the flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. And so the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and is enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father God, we pause before you this morning. We want simply for you to be at work in our lives to conform us in such a way that we really genuinely are the people that you've designed us and created us to be. Lord, you created each of us. You have redeemed each of us in this room, Father, for purposes. That we might delight in you, that we might magnify you, that we might find life in you, but also that we would be a display of your glory and that we would be a manifestation of 
of your good works. Help us, Father, to navigate trials because they are many, they are various, and they are always with us. And so, Father, would you give us strength in them today? And as we open your word now, as we walk through it, I pray that, God, you would guide us and direct us in it and that, Father, you would be pleased. We love you and we give ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today I have six points. And I normally have three, so you might be going, ooh, we're going to be here for an hour. Nope, I'm going to try really hard not to do that. I'm going to move fairly quickly, bang, 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 along through the text and pick up where we left off last week. Now, again, last week we started off considering trials and what God has to say to us about how we endure those. And there's a very real sense in which all the way through verse number 20, James is in some way, shape, form, or fashion dealing with an aspect of trial or a particular disposition that we may have in trial or a perspective that we may have in trial or a particular source of trial. And he instructs us along the way on how it is we are to navigate. Number one, I want you to see here this morning, in verse number 9 through verse number 11, James instructs us to keep our fortune in proper perspective. Now, what do I mean by fortune? I mean your lot in life. I mean your financials. I mean your social status. I mean your lot in life as a whole. Each of us navigates this world, and we navigate the world with the things that we have and the people that we have around us. And for many of us, that can be a source of difficulty. But James challenges both the fortunate and the unfortunate by worldly standards to keep that supposed fortune in a proper perspective as it equates to God's kingdom. You see, in our world, we have an economy. And I don't mean a financial economy per se. I mean that there's a way things happen, there's a flow, and there's a rhythm to our lives. And we assign value or worth to various things in our circles. If you have a lot of money, then we think that's a valuable thing, a good thing, a worthy thing. If you don't have a lot of money, well, there's a bad value associated with that. If you're in a high, upper-level uh, echelon of society, we, can, we, we assign a worth to that, and we consider that a good thing or a bad thing. And so we consider our lives often through the lens of fortune, but fortune as the world would understand it. And what James wants us to do here is remember, in God's kingdom, in His economy, things don't always work the way the world does. In fact, God has this tendency to just flip things upside down. And so he reminds us in verse number 9 through verse number 11 about that when it comes to earthly fortune. You see, there's two people in this scenario that James is describing. There's the one who does not have fortune by the world's standards. And there's the one who does have fortune by the world's standards. And what James says is, hey, listen, you got to remember God's going to flip it upside down. Verse 11 and verse 9, let the lowly brother, the one of disfortune, let the lowly brother, watch this, glory in his exaltation. And you might be sitting there thinking to yourself, if you're one of lowly fortune by the world's standards today, what exaltation? When is that exaltation going to come? This is often the prayer of the Psalms and the psalmist as they would go through. Lord, how long will the wicked prosper? And how long will the righteous go down in shame? They would ask questions like that. And we wonder about that type of thing. Look, the exaltation, we may be wondering when, Lord, or where is it? But of course, it is yet to come. What James is reminding us of is that, listen, if you're of a lowly stature, that we, if we humble ourselves in that, will be exalted at one point. Verse number 10, but the rich man, he is to glory in his humiliation. You say, what humiliation? He's got everything. Maybe he does right now. 
but he surely won't for long. And he goes on to say, because as the flower of the field passes away, no sooner that when the sun rises, the heat comes and the grass withers away, the flower fails and it perishes. And now the lesson is, so the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Now, of course, we wonder in this scenario, does this mean if you're well off financially that things are not looking good for you in the afterlife? (laughs) Well, no, not necessarily. James, like the book of Proverbs, speaks in generalities, right? Generalities. These are things normally true, but not always true. You know, like for, as, for example, as a professor, I've often found I, I typically will have three types of students. Those who don't have the natural intelligence and they're lazy, they may as well stop right now. Then you have some people that, man, they don't have the natural intelligence, but what they lack in intelligence, they make up with grit and determination. Then you have those that are well off intellectually. And I've found it to be the case in most of those scenarios, the more gifted they are, the more lazy they are. And so there are generalities, right? Give me, by the way, just give me one kid with grit versus a thousand with brains any day, and I'll take that kid every single time because God's going to do great work through them. There are generalities. Now, is it always true that those who are incredibly smart are always lazy? No. Occasionally, you find ones that come along and they've got the natural giftings and they work hard also and the sky is the limit of what can happen with and through them. The same types of things are true here with regard to the lowly and the elevated. Listen, there are some that are very well off financially and their heart is right in it. Right? And for those people, yes, it will be well with them. There are also some that don't have two nickels to rub together. They're, they're broke as they can possibly be, and they have a bad attitude about it. Generally speaking, that, that's not the norm, right? There are some people that are that way. What, what James wants us to see here is the general stuff. Generally speaking, the lowly are well off with God, and the high, because they become haughty, because they get puffed up, because they think of themselves as bigger than life and maybe even independent of God and autonomous and all of those types of things, James spells out trouble for those types of people. So here's the instruction for us in verse number 9 through 11. In the middle of trial, don't let your sociological, your economic status in this world deep six you with regard to hope. The vast majority are lowly. And what James instructs us to do is celebrate the fact as, with a humble posture that God is going to be at work in and through us. Jesus says this in Mark chapter 10, verse 25. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of, kingdom of God. He doesn't say it's impossible. He just says it's easier. Psalm 138, verse 6. Though the Lord is high, listen to this, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows afar off. Do you hear that? God himself is high. He therefore loves the lowly and he looks after them. Proverbs chapter 3, verse number 34. Surely he scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. The wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the legacy of fools. Proverbs chapter 29, verse number 23. A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. I've beat this drum before. I've raised these points before. You say, why are you so redundant? Simple, because the scriptures are redundant on this point. 
The scriptures repeat it again and again and again from Old Testament to New Testament. And so we set it before the people of God and we simply say we believe it or we don't. Folks, don't let arrogance and haughtiness puff up in you. Keep your heart and your mind postured lowly before God because that is what God honors. That is what God esteems. That is what God thinks is beautiful. And He will honor that. So number one, keep your fortune of this earth in proper perspective. Number two, verse number 12. Endure temptations. Endure temptations, verse number 12. Blessed is the man who, watch this, endures temptation. Now look, we can just stop right there for a moment. There's not a whole lot beyond what he just said there to squeeze out of that in word studies and other things. Endure means to endure. It means that we pull up our, 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 our big boy pants and we keep marching on. We have to be, as the people of God, I'll just say it this way. We have to be a formidable people. People that can do hard things. People that can stay with difficult tasks. Again, a little bit of grit, a little bit of determination, a little bit of toughness to rise up and continue plugging on even through the midst of temptation. And oftentimes, it is our temptations that we have to endure. Listen, let me tell you the thing about temptations. Temptations are probably here to stay forever. We pray as if that's not going to be the case, right? Think about how that young teenage boy battling lust prays and prays and prays. He wants to be godly so bad. He really wants to honor Jesus so bad, but boy, girls are pretty. And he struggles and he struggles and he struggles. And what does he pray in the middle of those struggles? He prays, God, just take away that desire. And every man in this room knows that that's not going to happen. No matter how old we get, it just doesn't work that way. Some of those desires are hardwired in for good reasons. Listen, the key here is not to eradicate desire. That's Buddhism. The key here is to harness that desire. The key here is to control that desire, not let it control us. Right? James says, endure. Endure what? Temptation. Blessed is the man. Now watch what he says now. For when he has been approved, he'll receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. In other words, God will bless you as you endure in this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 <clears throat> says this. There is no temptation that's taken you except that which is common to man. So in other words, here's what we tend to do in our temptations. We tend to think that we're the temptations that rage in us are unique to us. We tend to think that I'm the only one going through it. Well, not according to 1 Corinthians 10. There's no temptation that's taken you except which is common to man. In other words, get over yourself. We all have to go through this. This is something common to all of us. But listen to this. Here's the promise. There is no temptation that's taken us except which is common to man. But God is faithful. That's a statement. That's a statement we need to say to ourselves out loud, quietly in our head when we face temptations. Temptation is here. God is faithful. Faithful to do what? Listen to what he says. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Now we'll give in to it and we might say, well, I just couldn't resist. Wait a minute. Not according to the scriptures. The scriptures say that God won't let the temptation get to the point which you just can't deal with it. And so what does he go on to say? But with temptation, he will make a way for you to escape so that you'll be able to bear under it. 
So in other words, I take verse, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 to be saying this, that no matter how much the battle rages with our temptations when they come, God is faithful to us in those moments. And if we turn to Him properly, if we yield to Him, if we seek Him, if we're crying out to Him properly, He'll give us a way of escape. So therefore, if that's true, the only real reason I sin is because I want to. And because you want to. We'll see more about that in a minute. Galatians chapter 5, verse number 16. I say then, Paul says, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Wow, there is an antidote to our, to our temptation, right? And that is to yield to God, walk with God, walk in His Spirit, and He gives us the ability to endure. Thirdly, do not make excuses for your sins, he tells us in verse number 13 through verse number 14. This is something we're prone to do, right? I sin, you sin in the middle of a trial, in the middle of temptation, and we will deflect it as much as anybody else, right? It will always be our disposition to try to put our problem, put our mistake off onto someone else. We see it even in the way we apologize to people, right? Well, I'm sorry that you were offended by my words. As if the problem is in the receiver. No, 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 no. The whole concept of sin means I do it. And what we don't want to do is be constantly deflecting ourselves. I'm telling you, it's not just because it's wrong and silly to do that. <clears throat> it's because when we deflect and fail to own our own sins and our own problems, we short-circuit God's grace in our lives. You know, there's something powerful, there's something transformative in being able to say the words, I am sorry. There's something powerful and redemptive that takes place when we confess our sins and own it. James says this in verse 13, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. Now we'll try to deflect onto other people. I think what James wants us to see here is that there are times we might even try to deflect that onto God. Certainly there have been people throughout history that did that, right? Think about Genesis chapter 3. God comes into the garden he looks for Adam. He already knows exactly where Adam is. He calls out to Adam, Adam, where are you? He already knows where God is. I mean, where Adam is. Adam answers, we were hiding over here because we were naked and we were afraid. Who told you that you were naked? And what does Adam do? He begins to deflect, first onto his wife and then onto God. It's the woman, which is true. She ate the, the fruit first, but he's the one that's accountable. She brings it to him. God's going to hold him accountable for his sins. It's the woman that you gave me. He first tries to deflect it onto the woman. And oh, by the way, God, you're the one that put her here. Right? No, 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 no. When you sin, own the fact that it's your sin. Listen to verse again, verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted for God. No, no, no. Temptation, evil, and darkness don't come from God. This is what James wants you to see. Now, God may very well let you sit in a trial. But understand that the Father of light, in Him there is no variation or shadow of turning. There is no darkness in Him whatsoever. This is John chapter 1. That in Him was light and there was no darkness at all. James is saying roughly the same thing. God Himself cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He Himself tempt anyone. So whatever's evil and dark doesn't come from Him. Rather, verse 14, watch what he says here. But you want to know where it comes from, he says? Each one is tempted when? When he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed, brought in, lured in, and snared. 
when we let our own desires take control, when we let our own temptations rage and we feed them and we fuel them, we step into sin. That's where that comes from. What James is going to go on to say next is that, yeah, and it's going to destroy you. But for now, what I want you to see is that, listen, you don't deflect our sins onto other people. We have to own our sins. Listen to what the Bible says, 1 John chapter 1, verse number 9. If we confess our sins, that's something so painfully difficult for us, isn't it? Man, our pride, our, our need to be thought of the right way, our need to please people, our need for whatever. Maybe it's arrogance and pride. Maybe it's just you, you're a people pleaser and you just don't want people to be disappointed. Whatever the reasons are, it is difficult for us to confess. Again, it is often so very, very difficult to simply say the words, I'm sorry. How many marriages have ended because of a pride and an arrogance of two people that are too hard-headed to understand and to see that they're actually destroying each other? And you sit there and you think to yourself, man, I'd be better off if we just left. Man, look, I've watched as a pastor, who knows how many people get divorces, and it is always bloody. It is always, always, always destructive. Not just for the two of them, but for all the little ones that come in the wake and for friends and family and so many other things. Because we, we won't simply say words like, I'm sorry. I did wrong. But watch this. If we confess, that's the hardest part. That's the one thing, by the way, we're asked to do by God in our sin. Confess. Own it. Admit it. Own the fact that it was... Me who did it. Agree with God. Listen, He already knows that you're guilty. And be assured that He already loves you nonetheless. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Romans 5 tells us that God demonstrated His own love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ loved us and gave Himself for us. Meaning to say... That God knew all of your sins. He knew all of your blemishes. He knew all of your failures and your shortcomings. Listen, He knew all your failures and shortcomings before you came to Christ. He even knows the magnitude and the enormity of times that you're going to fail Him even after you've come to Christ. He knows all of your blemishes. We're always so afraid that people, if we let them in and we confess and we admit, they're going to realize that there's something wrong with me. Newsflash, of course there's something wrong with you. You're a fallen sinner, just like me. So why is that so hard to confess? If we confess, that's all you're asked to do. Watch what now God's going to do. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of unrighteousness. You see what I'm saying? Our refusal, because of arrogance or people-pleasing or whatever it is, our refusal to just own the fact that we did it short-circuits the magnitude of God's grace that will flow to us. If we confess our sins, God is faithful. He will forgive our sins. He will clean us from all unrighteousness. But if you deflect, if you give pseudo-apologies, in short, if you fail to own your own sin. You short-circuit all that in your life. Now, let me ask you a question. Raise your hand. How many of you in this room want and desire for God not to flood you with redemption and cleansing? How many of you do want redemption and cleansing? 
That's every one of us. If you confess, He's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So, don't make excuses for your sins. Own it. Fourthly, verse number 15 through 18. Be assured that sin brings forth death and destruction. I have said this to you already repeatedly in my short time with you. It's a mantra of mine. It's a paradigm of mine. Listen, in short, being a Christian is not about being a good boy or a good girl. It's about living or dying. Which do you want? Which do you want for yourself? Do you want life as God created it, as God intended? Well, then walk in His path because in it, you will be like the tree, Psalm 1, planted by the river's waters, whose roots run down deep and are well nourished, and it will thrive and prosper. Doesn't mean you won't be difficulties. Doesn't mean you won't make mistakes. Doesn't mean there won't be bumps in the road. But what it does mean is God's blessings will be upon you in everything you do. Do you want to live or do you want to die? Because if you embrace your sin, you give it its place, it will destroy you. Watch this. Verse 15. Then when desire is conceived, that's step one. Ooh, that's shiny. When desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. A thought starts with a thought, doesn't it? Results in an action. Let me pause there doesn't just mean a physical action. It may very well be a physical action. But look, you can actually sin without doing anything with these hands. You can sin if you never in a 24-hour period, if you never uttered a single syllable, never got out of your chair a single time, and you sat in quiet and, and solitude, you could be sinning the entire time. How? Thoughts are conceiving, but you're entertaining you're indulging. You're feeding. Billy Graham once was asked the question about if he ever had inappropriate desires for a woman other than his wife. He, and he thought for a second, obviously knowing he needed to be very careful how he answered that question. He said, you know, I'm, I may not be able to prevent a bird from landing on my head. But I can keep it from building a nest there. Look, you, to be fallen is to be fallen. You're going to think the wrong thing sometimes. Uh, that's, that's human, or at least fallen human. But what you can do is stop feeding it. Stop indulging it. I mean, let's, let's just deal with one example of this. It could, you, I could do this with money. I could do this with power. I could do this with greed. Let's just take physical lust. Men, look, you may, you may have a desire. Ladies, you may have a desire, a physical desire for another man or something like that. Look, that... that those types of things in a fallen, broken world and as fallen, broken creatures, those things are going to occur to us. But what you can do is stop entertaining it. Stop fantasizing about it. You're sinning in that moment. So watch what he says. When desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. Now watch this. When, and I, Let me just say this. We either believe this or we don't. And we're all going to say in Sunday school, yeah, Amen, brother. And then we're going to go out on Sunday afternoons and Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, and all the other times of our lives, and we're going to live as if we don't believe it. We're going to live as if somehow we think, I'm going to go ahead and do it and entertain it, and it's not going to harm me. No. You either believe it or you don't. Watch this. When it's conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, now that he's got you, what? Brings forth death. Sin always destroys. It always destroys or disrupts or corrupts. 
Let me ask this question. How many of you want disruption and dysfunction in your life? Yeah. How many of us want well-being in our life? All right. Look, following Christ is about living. It's about wholeness. It's about well-being. It's about joy. It's about peace. Sin will entice you. It will indulge you. And for a quick second, it will satisfy you. But be assured you just drank the ocean water and you are sure to die soon. You'll come back emptier. You'll come back more thirsty. You'll come back with a greater problem because you indulge it. So be assured that sin always destroys and brings forth destruction. A verse, a, paradig- a paradigmatic verse in my life, John chapter 10, verse 10. I, are, I know I already quoted it, but the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what Satan, Satan has a, a plan for your life. We hear people talk about God that way, right? Yeah, well, the opposite's also true. Satan has a plan for your life, and he wants to diminish you. He wants to destroy you. He wants to cloud your life with dysfunction and disharmony. So don't let him. Understand that Christ came that you would have life and that you'd have it more abundantly. Verse number 19, fifth thing I want you to see very quickly. Listen more than you speak in trial. It'll always be our temptation or our tendency to blather. We just have to be heard, don't we? I just got to get mine in. I just got to rebut what you just said. Maybe the person speaking to you is a fool. Don't throw your pearls before swine. Don't answer the fool in his folly and become a fool yourself. Look, it's our temptation or our tendency to feel like we have to get ours in and understand, pull back from the moment, look at the situation from a 30,000 foot view for just a second and recognize in that moment you're probably just exacerbating the issue. You're probably just amplifying it and feeding it in some way. He says, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear. My first task in this moment of conflict or difficulty or trial is not to blather on. My first task is to listen and make sure, no matter how vitriolic the person I'm speaking to is, listen to what they're saying and see if there might be any truth in it. Look, I've learned over the years, people don't like me saying this, but I've learned over the years, sometimes your enemy is the only one that will shoot straight with you. Think about it. Your friends, your family. Hey, you think, man, you're mad about a situation? Can you believe she said that? Can you believe they, that, that they did that to us? Oh, yeah, man, I can't believe that. And in the back of their mind, they're going, man, but you were a donkey. It's hard for friends and family to say that to each other. But guess what? Your enemy hates you, and they don't care if your feelings are hurt. In fact, that's their goal. So, boom, they will punch you in the mouth with it. When I was pastoring a small church in North Carolina, I I can remember I had folks that looked at me one day and told me I was arrogant. And you know, oh man, that's not true, blah, blah, blah. You know, I I fuss and I protest and I do all those types of things. And um, my friends and everybody would, of course they had my back. 
But there were times I'd just sit quietly and stare in the mirror for a second. You know, I might be. Be swift to hear. I'm not saying despair over yourself when your enemy says something truthful about you. But be swift to hear. Oh, watch this. And be slow to speak. I mean, what? Just, I'm not saying this is for every situation. There is a time for us to speak, absolutely. There's a time for us to stand up and protest, absolutely. But watch the life of Jesus. How often did he do that? Were there times he did it? Yeah. I mean, there was that one time, you remember, he made the whip of cords and he overturned the money tables and he evidently did it very deliberately and thoughtfully. Is there a time to stand up, bow up, and do something? Yes. But is that what he normally did? No. As a lamb before his slaughterers was silent. He was beaten, he was flogged, he was spit on. Yet he opened not his mouth. How do you do that? How could he do that? Here's how he did it. He knew and he trusted that his father had this. Why do we protest and why do we take it into our own hands and do it? It's because I, I think at the end of the day it's because we're not actually trusting that he's got this. Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, he says to us here in this passage. Real quick, Proverbs 10 verse 19. In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. <laughs> this makes me never want to talk again, right? But he who restrains his lips is wise. Hmm. Proverbs 17, verse 27 through 28. He who has knowledge spares his words. Man, when I was a kid, when I was 18, 19, 20, 30s, man, I just felt like I had to make sure everybody knew how much stuff I knew. He who has knowledge spares his words. And a man of understanding is a calm spirit. Even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. When he shuts his lips, he's considered perceptive. In other words, you could be a real dummy. If you're quiet, they're going to think you're brilliant. Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak. Last thing, very quickly. Number six, be slow to anger and slow to wrath. Let then, my beloved brethren, every man be swift to hear, slow to speak. And watch this, slow to wrath. Control your temper. You say, well, I have a hard time doing that. I'm Irish. Who cares? Are you a Christian? Then let Christ control you. He doesn't care about your pedigree. His call is not contingent on that. Like, like, Imagine he gave us a contract and we followed him. Now, you're going to follow me in these ways. Oh, but if you're Irish, here's a footnote. You get a pass. No. Let every man be slow to wrath. Control your temper. This is hard for me. I can lose it. I like to think that the older I get, my fuse gets a little longer. But for the most part, this is a challenge to us, isn't it? Now, watch this. He's going to tell us why. Verse 20. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Remember last week I talked about baseball and repetitions? Muscle memory is what we call it, right? It takes something like 10,000 proper swings 
to get all the motions exactly right. You just do it again and again and again and again and again until at some point you don't have to think about it. It just becomes what your body does naturally. Same thing with a throw, same thing with a catch, same thing with anything. So therefore, little boys, when you just lollygag and throw a ball like that, don't you ever do that in my practice again. Why? Because you're practicing getting worse. You're giving your body muscle memory in the wrong direction. Wrath. Spiritually speaking, you're forming the wrong muscles there. And it does not take you in the direction towards God. Real quick, Proverbs 29, verse 22. The angry man stirs up strife, and a furious man abounds in transgression. A furious man abounds in transgression. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 9. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry. For anger rests in the bosom of fools. Proverbs 16, verse 32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Father, bless us this day as we've considered your word. Help us to be a people that heed your instructions to us. Guide us through this day, through this week. Help us to live with great wisdom and clarity and as we navigate the circumstances we find ourselves in. We love you and we give ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.